Good morning. Would you, as a courtesy to the other people who are gathered here today, please make sure that your cell phone is in the off position? Um, and I, um, Bob didn't know to do this, but some of you will be pleased to know that seated on the second row are Tom and Crystal Irvin. Yeah. <clears throat> All the way from North Carolina? Yes. North Carolina. So welcome. We are we are glad you are here and thanks to the folks in the back who make this happen. So let's uh, let's begin with a word of silence. Do whatever you need to do to get yourself in this space. There's so much out there to distract us, so be present and open, awake. And our the Celtic prayer that I have adapted is, May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and at our departing. So my hope is that you find what you're looking for here. Um, and I want to join with Bob and with... Um, Wayne, in saying that if you do like what you find here, invite others, please. Um, I grew up in a very uh, evangelical tradition, and we would um, be encouraged to bring others to church. We'd have a thing uh, a couple of times a year called a revival. Some of you would grew up in that, and uh, we um, would have these mottos of, you know, pack a pew night. Everyone bring one. We were Baptists. The Episcopalians had a good motto. Every fourth bring a fifth. <laughs> so that was cool. That was cool. If you believe in what happens here and you find it useful, I really would like for you to reach out and tell other people. There's a lot of bad information out there about religion and spirituality, and I hope that what you find here is helpful and, and useful. Okay? Now, today I'm going to talk about reality. And I'm going to talk about perception. And I'm going to talk about assumptions. And you'll hear me uh, quoting a professor of mine, Paul Vatslavik, um, about how we create reality. So we're going to do a little experiment in creating reality before. This is part of the talk, by the way. This is, just want you to know that. I asked Pam Poole today if she would help me. Uh, I didn't want to embarrass her. I'm not going to ask her to get up in public. I didn't want to be caught shorthanded. But I did ask her to um, think of a fruit. And you had many options, and you picked one. And it's true that I have no idea what you're about to say. What is the fruit that you have in your mind? 
Apple. Okay. If you were to be asked that, what fruit would you have thought of? How many of you would have thought apple? Not many. I thought lemon. Okay. Now, you, you will not get as much out of this experiment if you don't do what I'm going to suggest to you. Hold your left hand up in front of your face like this. And imagine that you have in your left hand a lemon. Okay? Smell it. Taste it. Lick it. Imagine that in your right hand you hold a knife. Hold your hand up. And imagine you take your knife and you slice into this lemon. You see the juice running down your hand. You see it. Then imagine that you take this lemon up to your mouth and taste it. How many of you got a physical experience? Look at that. Now, did you see what you just saw? Or did I verbally misdirect you? Did I have a knife that I used <laughs> to cut the lemon? Did I? That's what I verbally said. And did I have a lemon? I just have a piece of paper. There is no lemon, there is no knife. And um, it is true that Pam had a choice of whatever fruit you, there were many choices, and you chose. And so if I unwrap this particular yellow piece of paper, not knowing what she was going to say, on the inside of it, what you find is apple. That's it. <clears throat> Thank you, Pam. So, hope you find what you're looking for. And, uh, and no matter what you, no matter who you are, where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So, we've been talking about awareness. Awareness is a door each of us has got to be willing to go through. Um, and this is one of those things you get to begin again every day, every single day. Awareness opens us to all sorts of things. Wonder. And if we do the work, it opens us to each other. And uh, as I said last week, our ability to distinguish between another's presence and our perception of that person's presence has the power to change the world. This is not easy. I think being aware of what we in the shrink business call transference and projections is a lifetime work. But the saintly person sees what is. And our culture thrives on prejudicial seeing. We, we all, everybody in this room, you're a smart group of people, so you know this to be true. We all know that we are aware of biases and prejudices, and we can forget it like that. We're all victimized by this. 
So I began today with that fruit experiment because I wanted to know, did you see what you saw? And if you were to leave here today and to tell somebody about what you think you saw, what would you say? You know, I mentioned in here a number of times, I mentioned at the beginning, one of the ways that I think I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet is because of the teachers I've had. One of them was a man named Paul Vatlavik. Um, Vatlavik was born in Austria. He got his uh, degree in philosophy, and then he went to Zurich and got an advanced uh, psychology uh, designation from a guy named Carl Jung, whom you may have heard of before. One of the reasons I love him him so much. So a man by the name of Don Jackson, who was living in Palo Alto, California at the time, persuaded Paul Vatlavik to come to America. And Don Jackson and Paul Vatlavik and Gregory Bateson and a number of other people formed this group in psychology about system psychology. And they really were on the cutting edge of a new development, a new paradigm of understanding what was happening in human development. It was just so exciting to be part of that. I would say that this man became one of the most influential figures in the world of psychiatry and psychology at the time. He believed among other things, that people cause their own suffering by the solutions they use to relieve themselves of suffering. I'll give you a very simple example. I'm very stressed. I think I'll have a drink. You'll drink to that. And so, in, 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 in many cases, uh, as the old saying goes, the man takes a drink and then the drink takes a man. One of the best lines that Paul Votlavik is known for is, one cannot not communicate. And just think how many times that you've said to an intimate partner, I never said anything, and by that, you say a lot. Right? So if I were asked to come up with a list of the ten most influential books in my life, one of them would be a book that Vatovic wrote along with others called The Pragmatics of Human Communication. This may be one of the, he wrote a number of books, um, but this laid the foundation for my being aware of and teaching about the importance of knowing how to talk. If we were to stop the next hundred cars going up and down Main Street out here and ask the driver of the car, do you think you are an above average driver? <laughs> Everybody would say yes. But clearly accident statistics show that's not the case. We're not all above average drivers. And if you were to ask the average person, do you know how to talk? Most people would say, uh-huh. <laughs> but we, <laughs> we don't know how to do that. 
One of the most common presenting issues in couples therapy is that couples will come into therapy and say, we don't know how to communicate. Now I want to say, that's not true. You communicate all the time. You just don't know how to talk to each other. And that's why most people don't have a clue about the emotional wake they leave in the lives of other people just by the way we can be. Uh, Vatlavik wrote a number of books. One I really enjoyed reading, and you can get this off the internet or ask your bookshop to get it for you. He wrote a book called The Situation is Hopeless But Not Serious, The Pursuit of Unhappiness. And it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek presentation of how what we do that we think is going to solve our problems and bring us happiness works against us. Now, the other book that is germane to our time together that he wrote is called How Real is Real? Communication, Disinformation, Confusion, subtitled A Very Lively Demonstration of the Ways in Which Communication, Spoken, Written, sign and body language creates what we call reality. And I highlighted that subtitle because what you saw in that um, effect that I did created a kind of reality that didn't exist. And it's done by suggestions and verbal innuendo and chicanery and other kinds of things. I'm sure you've all heard of AI, artificial intelligence, and maybe you've heard now about ChatGPT. I sat with a man this week who demonstrated what could be done, some of the things with ChatGPT and other tools that are on the Internet, commonly sourced, free, anybody can do. And one of the things that he showed me was an animation, a movie, of his deceased grandfather's head talking to him about his family history. The head moved, the eyes blinked, expressions changed, the mouth moved. He was looking right at us as he talked. My friend had put a, a, a verbal script of some kind into the chat GPT thing. I don't know how it works. And then out comes this figure of his grandfather saying the family history. This is scary. Because soon there will be people who have the skill, and there are many of them out there who do, to put um, speeches in the mouths of people having them say things they never said. Now, the first run-in that I had, and most of you had maybe, with um, this kind of false reality was right after the inauguration of President Donald Trump, former President Trump. He bragged that the crowds at his inauguration were the largest in history. Photographs showed just the opposite, but one of his primary spokespersons, Kellyanne Conway, when confronted with this, said, we have alternative facts. <laughs> True. And so that gave birth to all the alternative facts 
jokes. We have the Golden Book of Alternative Facts. That's deep fake too. In this cartoon, I love this guy who draws these cartoons, Alternative Facts. Okay, so without delving deeply into the nuanced matters of this, I think we can begin with the affirmation that we and the communities that we live in thrive in the soil of that which truly is, and that we and the communities in which we live shrivel when we wander away from truthful living. When Jesus said that you shall know the truth and the truth is what sets us free, this is the kind of reality that he is referring to. Now, I hope you know that there is a progression in these talks that I have been giving on awareness. We started with the fact that fundamental awareness, openness to what is, is the first essential step on the road to a path of full humanity. It's not about spirituality, it's not about religion, though we use spirituality and though we use, I use the teachings of Jesus, it's a path about being fully human. And the first step is just being aware. And then the second step after you're aware is that you're aware of all the wondrous things in the world. Some of them we label good and some of them we don't. Some of them we label as tragic, but they are the, the, the ways of the world. And then we become aware of others. We become aware sometimes of our complicity in the issues of injustice. Uh, most people, including myself, don't want to be confronted with or become aware of our complicity in structures of injustice that are inherent in the system from which we benefit, um, but we are. And of course, one of the ways that the gifts of the ego is that we can put a spin on everything. To our advantage. We can rationalize any behavior. This is the way that we distort reality. Projection, transference, and reaction formation are topics that covered semesters in graduate school. But they are the things that we do all the time. I might be standing next to the bed in my training in the hospital, next to a, a bed where a child has just died, grieving parents are there, and some well-meaning idiot comes into the room and sees what's happened and says to the parents, I know exactly what you're going through, and I want to slap them. No, you don't. You have no idea what these people are going through. Or somebody will come in and say, even worse, this is all for the best. What a gift we would give ourselves and to the world if we could look at another person's behavior as a reflection of the state of their relationship with themselves rather than a statement about us or about the circumstances. This would be such a gift. This is what marks saints, by the way. They don't take us personally. And at any rate, we all have ways of regularly choosing illusion 
over reality. We choose to see a knife instead of a fork, a lemon instead of a water paper. And we do create stories about ourselves, about our families, our tribes, our country, the region we embrace, that constitute such a web of lies that not only do they bind us from freedom, but they keep us from seeing what is. It's not just that we tell lies, we live them. We become them. And then, thank grace, though it feels awful initially, along comes someone like Jesus to say to us, unless you repent of that, you're going to lose your life. <clears throat> and we say, this does not apply to me. <laughs> and then he says, well, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. So what are we going to do? We have to be willing to go down into reality, descending into reality. Um, I've got a lot of issues with our saying the Apostles' Creed every Sunday in the worship service. I'm not here to get into that right now, but for some reason John Wesley left a phrase out of the Apostles' Creed that most other people who use the Apostles' Creed use, and that is that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We don't like that part. But it covers reality. So losing that which is so precious to us, that the ego-created image is the, is the only way to go. Now, I am assuming most of you have heard what I'm about to say in one form or another sometime in your life. If you grew up in a church, I know you've heard this before. And uh, I heard it growing up as a kid in the Baptist church. And the phrase was, unless you lose your life, you cannot save it. Everybody's heard that, right? That's the path of descent that... Um, Meister Eckhart, a mystic who has become popular in the last dozen years or so, repopular, uh, really has done a lot of saying that the, the way to know God is by unknowing, by letting go. So though I've heard that teaching all my life, it was in the presence of Jim Finley that I really got to see it, I think, a number of years ago. And uh, Jim Finley had this image of the reality as going into a cave. That's an image that Plato used and other people have used the image as well. But I, I've taken that little bit that I got from Jim Finley and expanded it in a way that he would not recognize it. I just thought that it was a matter of integrity to give him credit for starting me down this particular path. So I created this drama. So if we're lucky, um, our lives take a turn toward the spirit. I mean, that's why you're here. That's why you're here. And it's why I'm here, because I'm doing this for me, and I'm glad you benefit from it. But we decide to be more intentional about spiritual well-being, and we seek out a teacher. And maybe that teacher will point us to somebody like Jesus or Buddha or Lao Tzu, um, let's say it's Jesus. That's been true for me. 
I was given Jesus just like I was given the English language. And then at some point, I was attracted to Jesus enough that I wanted to know him better. I wanted to know what he said, what he really said, what he didn't say, rather than what his interpreter said about him. And, and um, that's been so beneficial for me. And by the way, all of these talks on awareness are leading us in the direction of going directly into some of the teachings of, of Jesus that can help us understand what it means to live with peace, love, joy, humility, and patience better, those things. Okay, so here's the thing. So we've been walking with Jesus for a while, and uh, maybe it's not a long time, maybe six months, maybe six years, maybe 16 years, but we're still on the way, and we decide to stop and take a break, and we sit for a while. And we're sitting, and Jesus is on the side of us sitting, and uh, after a while, he says, you know, I really like you. I've enjoyed this. This has been fun. You need, you need to hang out with. And um, I'm pleased about so much about what you've learned and what you do, good things you do. And it really turns me on that you have a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> and he says, thank you. And, uh, we just beam. You know, we're so pleased that he's pleased. He gives us a hug. And then he says, you know, so far on our walk together, um, you've been pretty much in charge of things. There's this long pause. He says, I think I'd like to take over. Our anxiety starts going up. Oh, God, what's coming next? Oh, we like being in control. We like the good things in here. And he says, you see that cave over there? Mm-hmm. He said, God's in that cave. I want you to get up and go over and go in that cave and meet what changed my life. I want you to have the same kind of experience I had. Go have an encounter with the source of wholeness. <clears throat> now, I want to interrupt this little narrative right here to say that so far on the journey, the pats on the head, the hugs, the attaboys, they have felt good, and they are essential. Now, we've had all along a sneaky suspicion that sacred mystery was hidden from our sight, but we thought, that by our spiritual practices and having a daily spiritual practice and reading and attending ordinary life and doing all that sort of stuff, that God would eventually come out of the cave and give us a hug and tell us how precious we are, how adorable you are to me. You're so cute. And then that God would say, you go have a nice life now. And if you need me, call me. I'm, I'll be around somewhere. Let me know if there's some way I can help you out. 
Now, I'm going to tell you there's a certain truth to that. It's an unreal truth because it's the ego's truth, but it's an essential truth. The ego gets just enough juice from spiritual practice to keep it going, you know? But then there comes this sharp U-turn on the spiritual journey. And sadly, it, or gratefully, it's not a one-time event, but one we get to take every day, sometimes every step. And that's a reason that I like to read at least once a year from this book, Always We Begin Again. Now, some of you will know what I'm going to say. It will fit with you, and some of you will have to dredge it up in your memory, and some of you are still hoping for it. But it is like when you first fell in love with your partner. Oh, my God. She is the most beautiful, the most special creature God ever made. Or, you will not believe it, I finally met Mr. Right. Or as one of my clients said years ago, Mr. Not-So-Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you write love poems to each other. You send special cards back and forth. That was what Sherry and I did, cards. We did cards. Our card budget was big. And we would write each other these cards with these sometimes really kind of salacious messages inside. And I would use them as bookmarks. <laughs> and then it would occur to me, somebody would say, have you got a, such a book, book I can borrow? Sure. And I'd take it off the shelf and I'd flip through. Oh, my God. <laughs> take that out. <laughs> When we moved, I gave 90% of my library to the Houston Analytics Society and didn't remove any of the bookmarks. <laughs> and it just occurred to me, after the movers had come and taken them away, oh my gosh, what have I done? Or in modern people, you send text messages back and forth that you hope nobody will ever be able to read. Now, here, here's the thing. The ego needs that phase of ego enlightenment. Because if we didn't have a healthy amount of that attraction romantic energy, we couldn't survive the next leg of the journey. Because, holy cow, the relationship bliss hits the fan and you wonder what the hell you were thinking getting with this particular person. His absolutely carefree, abandoned manner you love so much at the start, on closer inspection, shows he's just a slob. <laughs> and, and, and her careful, attentive way of paying attention to every tiny detail looks a lot like CDO. That's OCD, but the letters are in the right order. <laughs> One of my colleagues once said, men marry women thinking they will never change. Women marry men believing they will change, and they're both wrong. <laughs> so here's the point. Though we realize this is not what I signed up for, this is precisely what I need. Because I'm not in this relationship either with my intimate partner or with the sacred mystery, to get. 
I'm there to learn and to learn how to love and to learn how to give. O oh, Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in self-forgetting that one is found, it is pardoning that one is pardoned, and it is in dying that one is born to eternal life. That's the truth. That's a spiritual calculus. So nevertheless, there we are sitting with Jesus, and he's pointing to the cave and said, you get up. And, and we tell him the truth. We say, I don't want to go. I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I want. But he's patient, and he'll just sit there. May we sit there three days, maybe three months, maybe three weeks, maybe three years, maybe 30 years. Three is a magic number in spirituality. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Threes pop up all over the place in uh, myths and legends. Three blind mice, three little pigs, a minister, priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. Goldilocks and the three bears, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The number three is signifying transformation. We say we want what Jesus has to offer us, but we bargain. Isn't there some other way that I could do this without going into that cave? And then we remember his uh, night in the garden where he prayed, if it's possible, I don't want to do this. But nevertheless, it's not what I want. He nudges us with his elbow, and so reluctantly we get up and we head for the cave. It's a long journey. It's a big journey. It's a hard journey. One of the most important books I ever read was this book by uh, Ayakima. She's a German-born Buddhist nun. And if you wanted a book on um, details about having a spiritual practice, this, I could not make a better recommendation than this particular book. She gives very clear, practical information on techniques, overcoming what I call bad habits of the mind. And elsewhere, she writes, what we are looking for lies within us. And if we gave our time and energy to an interior search, we would come across it much faster, since that is the only place where it is to be found. And we are about to reach the mouth of the cave, and we hear him call out, and we think, oh, thank God. <laughs> He's going to say, just kidding, you don't have to go. Or everything's going to be okay, which it is, but that's not what he says. We're just about to go to the mouth of the cave and go in. He says, oh, wait, wait, by the way, you can't take anything with you. So drop your stuff. Your roles, your clothes, your smartphone, your to-do list, your tribal loyalties, your notions of race and economics, your educational status, your nationalism, drop all that stuff and go. 
And this is our introduction to death before we die. We can't take anything with us, and though we may not know it now, we will look back on this moment as one of the blessed moments of our lives. Now, here's the thing. In the morning, we got to get up and take it all over again. Always we begin again. Thomas Merton wrote, There is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality, for life is maintained and nourished in us by our vital relationship with reality outside and above us. When our life feeds on unreality, it must starve. The death by which we enter into life is not an escape from reality, but a complete gift of ourselves which involves a total commitment to reality. So at the beginning of this new theme last year, I spent an entire time in here talking about how the phrase authentic existence, which I got from a German theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, has been one of the prime motivators in my spiritual work and theology. So what's authentic existence? Well, it's the living reality of who we are. It's not who we wish to be. It's not how we want others to see us. It's not what our tribe tells us. It's certainly not what we have. It's not what we've done. And there are many routes, especially in our culture, to take us away from our authenticity. There, is, there are many routes that take us away from truth and, 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 and love and freedom and that's what walking the human path is about. There's a rabbinic teaching story about this uh, famous rabbi who went to his followers one day and his eyes were tear ready and his face was flushed. And he told his followers that he had come to learn the question that God would ask him in the life to come. And his followers were puzzled because here's the most famous learned man of God they knew. What about his life could possibly be so terrifying that he would be frightened to answer it? And he said, I have learned that God will not ask me why you were not Moses leading your people out of slavery. Nor will he ask me why were you not Joshua leading your people into the promised land. God will say to me, there's only one thing no power of heaven or earth could have prevented you from becoming. Why were you not you? Uh, of any and everything on this planet, authenticity is a challenge to nothing except us. A flower knows what it's about. A dog knows what it's about. A cat knows what it's about. A bird knows what it's about. But we encounter all these challenges to being, and we have to decide. And there's a way of being right that's right for each of you. Just as there's a way of being right that's right for a flower, or right for a bird, or right for a dog. It's not the life we create. It's the life that's given to us. And finding and living that self is the life on which Peace and happiness depend. Now, I am not going to hold myself up as an example of one who has achieved this. I'm working at it. But I can also look back on those places and see where, whoa, was I off target. When I found out that I was going to be a professor in graduate school, the first thing I did was I went out and bought a set of golf clubs 
I bought a corduroy coat that had leather patches on the elbow, and I started smoking a pipe. Because everybody knows that's what a real professor does. I hated all of it. Now, this authenticity stuff is tricky because though knowing about it, and knowledge and information are critically important. It's, it is not rooted in knowledge and information. It's rooted in being. And I'm solidly convinced that the knowledge and information that are increasingly available to us through something like the works of Paul Vatlavic or now Ken Wilber of middle, uh, uh, integral uh, uh, theory are critical to us. But that knowledge and information just opens the door to the cave. Eventually, we ought to get up and go into the cave on our own by ourselves. And Richard Orr says that moving into this cave of authenticity comes by traveling two paths. One is the path of a solid daily spiritual practice. And the other is the path of suffering. Because the 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 the, the crises that we have in life have the power to break us open. Of course, the first thing most of us do when crisis comes is um, try to avoid or change them. Sonny Pearson and I were talking before class today about how both of us found out this morning that the the there are people in Syria and Turkey that are now suing the people who built the building that collapsed during the earthquake as if that's going to fix something? While I was recovering from quadruple bypass surgery some time ago, something I surely never saw coming, a friend of mine gave me a little book about the importance of the phrase being handed over. Now, you know where that phrase comes from. It comes from a Jesus story. Jesus' narrative, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's prayed, he's done everything he can, and Judas and the soldiers come, and Jesus is handed over. And after that, we don't hear anything from him. A couple words. Everybody in this room is going to have that opportunity, if you're lucky. If you don't get hit by a truck or earthquake and the building collapses, you're going to have the chance. You'll be handed over sometime. Of course, you're fortunate is that you have the option to exercise the daily spiritual practice if you want to. You don't have to. Now, this guy whose picture is on the screen, I frequently held up as a major player in my, in my life. Every single day of my life, I read the prayer that he wrote. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I cannot see the way ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does please you. And I hope that I have that desire in everything that I do. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, even though I may know a thing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. 
Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. This guy who wrote that fell desperately ill in Louisville. He was in a hospital and he fell head over heels in love with his nurse. This doesn't get a lot of press out there. Thomas Merton had an affair with his nurse. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine him sneaking out of the monastery for a rendezvous with this woman, but he did. One of my professors said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. What saved this man was his spiritual practice and the fact that he was completely honest with himself and with his spiritual director. One of my mentors, a man named Carl Marty, said, always have someone in your life to whom you can and will tell the absolute truth about your living. And I think how many missteps I could have avoided, how many wrong turns I could have not made if I had consistently heeded his advice. This is what Merton wrote later about the challenge of living in the realities and tensions that were in his life. The challenge of life is to face the real limitations of one's own existence and knowledge and not to try to manipulate them or to disguise them not to embellish them with possibilities. And it is after this encounter with this woman whose name I'm blocking on right now, he did his best writing on the difference between the true self and the false self. You know, Holly Hudley said in our presentation last week that we attempt to be consistent, and in doing so, we step away from authenticity. I'm not consistent. No human is. Consistency does not make us more authentic. It makes us less believable. We are all a mixed bag of contradictions. Jesus wasn't consistent. I grew up with the image of Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And Jesus could lose his temper and did. Turn the tables over in the temple, got irritated with the uh, religious establishment of his day, called him names, used a vulgar word that's not translated in the scripture as a vulgar word, but it is. One day a woman came to Jesus wanting his help, and he just pushed her away. She nagged him until he finally said, oh, get this woman off my back. That's why we're going to be talking about the shadow uh, in, in uh, Sundays to come, not next Sunday. Next Sunday we talk about presence. But in one of Carl Jung's most important contributions to depth psychology, the, the things that we don't want to own about ourselves, we project onto other people. And, and by the way, I just want to be clear that embracing the shadow, we don't want to idealize that either. That does not remove tension from your life. It does not. It just brings it up where you can see it where you can get it out in front of you and you run it more than it runs you. 
It just means that we don't have to be victimized by ourselves. Merton also said that God is all too real to be met anywhere else other than reality. So if you live in pretense, don't expect God to meet you there. Our spiritual practice has got to be grounded in reality. Somebody reached out to me just this week to ask if this book, John Sanford's book on the kingdom within, the inner meaning of the saints of Jesus, was a good book to read. And I thought, what synchronicity, because I had just finished reading it for the fourth time. Uh, four times in, in a row. <laughs> fourth time in my life. Because I'm going to be using this book a lot going forward, and, and it's just filled with gems. Sanford's thesis, which is now borne out by biblical scholarship, is that Jesus' teachings are mostly about inner work. Now, they do have outer application, but that's about all they've received in Western religious teaching. But the authentic journey into humanist starts by each of us getting our own stuff together. So I'm going to give you a very brief example of the kind of biblical interpretation Sanford is talking about. There is a story told in all three of the gospel narratives. John, I don't consider a narrative. It's a story about a time when Jesus is walking from one place to another, and there's a crowd around him, and a woman who had been suffering for an Ill, from an illness for 12 years comes up behind him and reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and is healed. Now that story in all three Gospels uses a number, uses a woman, and uses the number 12. 12 appears over and over and over in the biblical record. Twelve tribes of Israel, right? Twelve sons of Benjamin. Jesus had twelve apostles. Twelve, 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 twelve. Twelve is a number that symbols completeness. It symbols integration of authenticity. Now, in this case, the, 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 the figure, twelve, is embodied by a woman, feminine, psyche, spirit, soul, who is not well. This is symbolic language. The soul hungers for healing, for completeness, for integrity, for authenticity. Call it what you will. The soul desires to reach out and touch healing. Which in the story, it does. Now, that desire is what got you into this room. Listen to it. Don't listen to me. Listen to your life. Dare reach out and touch the hem of healing. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next Sunday. Thank you.